The difference between other countries and ours is that our documents don't give us any rights. Our document simply tells government when they're infringing on them. Are you freaking kidding me? Oye chico, get kidding me, get kidding me. As Americans, we need to stop being so dependent in government. Government is not the solution. Government is actually the problem. Enough is enough. It's time to put America first. Welcome everyone. Bienvenidos to another podcast for the Hispanics Lead Right, presented by the Republican National Hispanic Assembly of Florida. I am your host, Santiago Avila Jr., the Constitutional Conservative, and this week we have a special co-host, Maria Trent, our Volusia County uh, RNHA chairwoman. Maria, how are you today? Say something to our guests. Hi, I'm doing doing great. Thank you so much for having me this morning, Santiago. Awesome. Thank you for being on. Uh, Maria, I'm actually excited as well because we have a very, very special guest, uh, Congressman Michael Waltz. Congressman, how are you today? I'm fantastic. Thanks so much and and happy to be with you. Well, we really appreciate you taking time from your busy day and uh, coming on our podcast of uh, Hispanic Lead Right. And, uh, you know, um, Mr. Uh, Congressman Waltz, can you tell us a little bit about yourself for for the listeners? You know, we're, we're listened to pretty much uh, worldwide, actually, which is uh, we're very grateful mm-hmm. for that. Uh, but a lot of our uh, listeners are about 71 percent are all over the, the, the United States. And uh, for those that might not know who you are, even though here in Florida, we all we all know you. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. <laughs> well, congressman for Florida's sixth district, that's northeast Florida, uh, basically stretches from the suburbs of Jacksonville in the northeast corner of the state down to the suburbs of Orlando in the center of the state with uh, Daytona as the major um, kind of metropolis there. It's a beautiful district. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a Florida native, which is a rare thing. Uh, I grew up, in, grew up in Jacksonville, just outside of a Navy base. Uh, I'm the son of a, of a Navy chief, uh, but never really knew my father. So I grew up with an amazing, strong uh, single mom who, who pulled herself up uh, by the bootstraps in life and, and uh, you know, started with no college education, no degree, and uh, eventually put herself through 15 years of night school and we graduated college at the same time. Uh, and uh, she eventually retired as a, as a vice president of a major insurance company. I went off to the Virginia Military Institute. I'm now 24 years into the Army. Uh, and still going, so I'm pretty sure I'm the only member of Congress still jumping out of perfectly good airplanes. I uh, spent my career as a Green Beret Special Forces officer, but I did that in the reserves, much of it in the reserves, which meant I had to have a civilian job. And for a good number of years, that was in the Bush administration and the Pentagon and the White House. Uh, and then uh, built, uh, helped build my own company from scratch up to about 400 employees and uh, left that business, uh, which wasn't the smartest thing financially I've ever done, but left that business to uh, once again serve by running for office. I hold the seat now that Ron DeSantis left when he ran for governor. 
And uh, I am, uh, I'm, it's just been the honor of my lifetime. I've spent my whole life defending uh, our republic and now to be a small part of it uh, uh, truly is amazing. And only in America can, you know, a poor kid who I don't think I wore a shirt or shoes for the first five years of my life, uh, uh, you know, rise up and now represent nearly a million Floridians. Well, Congressman Waltz, you have an amazing resume. And, you know, on behalf of uh, the Republican National Hispanic Assembly of Florida and, and, and this podcast, Hispanics Lead Right, I, I like to thank you so much for being service to, to this to this country. I am more than honored to have you on this call. And I'm actually very, very excited uh, that you use the word republic. <laughs> a, a lot of other people, um, you know, that... that uh, that are in Congress don't realize that we're not a democracy, but I'm glad to see that our congressman from Congressional District 6 does know the difference. <laughs> so, uh, Absolutely. you know, I, I heard you mention, yeah, I heard you mention that you were in the military, and I guess the, I want to ask you, what influenced you to join the military? Was like tradition of family service, or was it a passion for you to to want to serve your country, or maybe a combination of both? Yeah, no, I think it really was a combination of both. It's one of those things that I've wanted to do as long as I can remember. Um, you know, my father and grandfathers uh, all served in the Navy, so I defected and went Army. But, um, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I never really knew them, so I guess it's just somehow in the DNA uh, for, for one reason or another. But, you know, I came to appreciate, particularly I had the opportunity in uh, – in college to go uh, study in Valencia, or as they say in Spain, Valencia, uh, with the th and the Castilian Spanish, um, which I've since lost, unfortunately. Uh, so I'm not going to embarrass myself by trying to by trying to speak good Spanish today. I'm working on it. I'm taking <laughs> classes again. Um, but. Uh, you know, I've just, especially when I, bottom line, especially when I went abroad, you know, I came to appreciate Winston Churchill's old saying that American democracy isn't, or is the worst system of government in the world, uh, except all the others, right? Uh, we are not perfect by any means, but I do think we are the most exceptional nation uh, on earth that provides just so many opportunities. And I've, uh, I also saw just as a history nerd, uh, what kind of threats this country uh, has been under and is in, uh, and uh, thought a life of service to that country that gave my mother and gave me so many opportunities was one worth living. Okay, awesome, great. Maria? Oh, I apologize. I... <laughs> <laughs> Your turn, Maria. Your turn. All righty. Well, I was just so intently listening to you, Congressman Waltz. Uh, uh, has any part of your military service influenced uh, your policy making as a congressman? Absolutely, it does. You know, there's there's nothing like having that dirt or sand under your fingernails mm -hmm. when we are talking about national security issues, when we're talking about military and veterans issues. You know, I lived with PTSD and TBI, uh, my multiple tours in Afghanistan. I understand the nature of terrorism. I've dealt with it firsthand. I understand the nature of, of the Chinese threat. I've dealt with it firsthand. Uh, and not only, uh, you know, overseas, but also, uh, you know, in the, in the White House. Uh, so, 
I, I really wanted to bring that expertise to bear. Uh, a statistic that is really striking to me is that we have gone from, in the 1970s, the Congress uh, was comprised of about 78%, the House and the, uh, and the Senate veterans that had been willing to put their life on their line on the line for this country, have been willing to die for their fellow Americans. Today, we're sitting at 18%, record wow. low in our nation's history ever. And I think that explains uh, a lot of our record amount of dysfunction. It's not necessarily our position on issues, it's the ethos that we bring. Because I can tell you firsthand, in the foxhole when the enemy's bullets are flying, uh, nobody cares about race, religion, social economic background. They just care. Yeah, all we care about is our brothers and sisters to our left and our right that were fellow Americans. And we're focused on mission. We're focused on country. We're focused on results. If you don't get results in combat, really bad things happen. And so, I, you know, I've been very supportive of veterans on both sides of the aisle. I would obviously prefer the Republicans. But uh, if I'm going to deal with a Democrat uh, on an issue, I'd rather than be a veteran all day long because we tend to be put country first, find common ground and focus on how to move the ball forward uh, for America. And so I think the more veterans that we get with that same ethos into our elected leadership at all levels, uh, at, from, from local to state to, to federal, uh, the better our country will be. You know, uh, Congressman Waltz, and and, and jumping into jumping into that that same spirit, um, one one of your opponents. I'm not going to mention the person's name because I I'm not I'm not going to promote them in any way, form, or fashion. But um, they recently made some silly assertions, and I'm going to read the following comment. And uh, Mm -hmm. the reason I'm even asking you this is because as a military person, somebody with military background. You guys don't see race or color, black, Mm -hmm. white, brown. You guys see brotherhood. So the comment was made, it says, Michael Waltz has failed to condemn the wanton murder of George Floyd. Here's a clue as to why. He voted no on H.R. 4, the Voting Rights Advancement Act of 2019. The bill would ensure racial barriers to voting are removed from elections across the country. Passing the VRAA will advance needed protections for people whose rights to vote is under attack based on the color of their skin. How do you respond to such an unfounded allegation? I mean, it's, it's just ridiculous. Well, first of all, that's conflating uh, two things. Uh, number one, I have condemned uh, yep. what happened to Mr. Floyd. Uh, I think the video was horrendous. I'm glad that he was immediately, the the officer in question, officers in question were immediately dropped from the police force for violating police police standards and uh, are being, now being charged and prosecuted, uh, which is exactly what should happen. Due process still needs to play out, uh, uh, but that, but this, but I think the system is moving forward. It may not have moved as quickly uh, or in the same way as some people would prefer, but, uh, but I think justice will be, will be served in that case. And I am absolutely engaged in reforms and other conversations uh, to, to try to create an environment where that never happens again, uh, number one. Number two, that is completely separate uh, from uh, House Resolution 4, which this individual was referencing. 
And, you know, I had a couple of issues with, with HR4. Um, one, you know, I, I think some people on the left would try to convince you this had to do with the voting, uh, uh, voting rights and uh, state versus federal uh, controls over how we vote. And I think some people would have you convinced that the Voting Rights Act like, doesn't exist anymore. I don't know. It is still very much in place. It is very much alive. Uh, it levies fines and other types of penalties for anyone who should try to prevent someone else who is entitled to vote from doing so. That person would be fined. Uh, you know, I'm looking at parts of the bill here. It says no person shall destroy, deface, or alter official voting ballots. That's a fine. Uh, no one shall provide false information of registering vote. That's a $10,000 fine. All of those pieces are still in place. What HR 4 essentially did was put take power uh, from how we vote out of uh, municipalities and states and put it in federal government hands, which I don't think uh, was how our founders intended uh, uh, our republic to operate. Things are handled very differently in, say, a state like Wyoming with a population the entire state is 600,000 versus, say, downtown Manhattan uh, or North Florida, right? So the the key piece there is if if a locality wants to, say, move a precinct, uh, move a voting location, try to clean up its voter rolls, all of those things would have to pass through a Department of Justice for what they call pre-clearance. And I have issue with that. You can imagine a situation, I could say the Democrats imagining a situation where they want to put uh, a new voting location in an underserved neighborhood and it has to pass through this Department of Justice. I could certainly see, theoretically, the left having real issue with that or vice versa in a rural area, you know, with a with a different uh, that some people may view as, as, as partisanship. So that was my main issue with it. We approached these bills very thoughtfully and thoroughly. And uh, to conflate that with the George Floyd issue, I just think is, is politics at its worst and somebody trying to take a cheap shot. Absolutely. I, I agree with you, Congressman Walton. Uh, folks, you've been listening to Congressman Michael Walsh from Congressional District 6. Please hold while we go on our first commercial break, and uh, now a word from our sponsor. At Parada Mortgage, we believe that there is a mortgage program for everyone. And so, we don't say no, we say how. The how are the keys to the American dream. We focus on results, communication, and urgency. And as a veteran-owned and operated mortgage company, we give back to our veterans. We are always at the ready. Call us now at 1-800-731-3024 for a free consultation for your purchase or refinance, or visit us at our website at www.paradamortgage.us to chat with us. Parada Mortgage, 1-800-731-3024. NMLS number 195839, Equal Housing Lender. Call for more information. Other restrictions may apply. Welcome back from our commercial break. Um, We're here with Congressman Michael Walt. As most Americans, we stand with the Floyd family regarding the abuse of power from 
the one officer, but lumping together all officers with a few of the bad ones and trying to push an agenda of defunding the police is dangerous. Would you support withholding federal funding from states or cities that are willing to defund their local police departments, compromising the safety of their citizens? Well, look, I think, again, what happened uh, to Mr. Floyd uh, was tragic, was abhorrent. Um, my prayers are certainly with his family, uh, whom you know, the nation has heard from. And, uh, and we certainly need to look at what we can do to make, uh, to make common sense reforms. I agree with you that is absolutely this incident and the other incidences, frankly, uh, does not reflect the nearly or the over 300 million interactions uh, our police departments around the country have uh, with, with everyday citizens. Uh, the vast, vast majority of which uh, are appropriate, are peaceful and are, you know, these men and women in blue are putting on that badge every day and stepping between the bad guys and and, and our communities. And my, my hat's off to them and I completely support them. And I think the last thing we should be doing is, is taking money away from them. Uh, I would support additional training. I would support, uh, and particularly when it comes to de-escalation, I would support different types of equipment, the newest technologies. Uh, I have supported in the past body cams. I think that tells the story of what our uh, police officers often uh, have to you know, endure or the decisions that, that they have to make, life and death decisions in split seconds uh, in, in a meaningful way. But you know, I also support which uh, the president and the Senate is working on right now, uh, databases and better registries for the few bad cops that are out there to not be able to hop from state to state or uh, department to department. So I think there's a number of things in place that we can do. And the last thing we should be doing, uh, and I think the thing that would hurt um, uh, disadvantaged communities in, in, in the most real way is to take money away from uh, our, our police department. So I just think it's just a it's terrible policy. It's an awful idea. Uh, and I, I just wanted to take a moment to go, if I could just go back to that, the, the last thing on the voting piece uh, that we talked about before your break, uh, that, that I have issue with writ large and that you're seeing popping up in a lot of the bills the left are putting forward when it comes to voting, is taxpayer funding uh, supporting campaigns. Uh, and look, I think a critical uh, aspect, a fundamental building block of our, of our republic is that uh, your vote should count for who you intended to count for. Uh, you need to be a U.S. citizen, and that needs to be verified for you to vote. And then thirdly, and this is what they're often going after on the voting piece, is you should be able to vote for who you want and financially support who you want. And I don't, I just don't fundamentally disagree with this big pot of taxpayer funding being allocated by, uh, by Congress and unelected bureaucrats out to campaigns. I want to see that dollar, uh, and we have federal limits, you know, whether it's a dollar or whether it's $2,800 going from the individual to the person that they want to support, whether it's the local level or the federal level. Uh, but, but filtering that through the federal government uh, really, really gives me pause. And it's another reason I voted against some of these, uh, some of this legislation. Sorry, I just wanted to get that point in, in addition to talking about the police issue. An important point. Well, uh, Congressman, yeah, yeah it, it's a great point. <coughs> Excuse 
excuse me, and and you know, kind of jumping on that, on the same uh, idea of, of 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 money. Um, as a fiscal conservative, what are some of the changes you like to see on the state and maybe even a national level on how our money yeah. is actually spent? Yeah. Well, first thing, it's always worth saying over and over again. Uh, in order for government to give to something or a program, it has to take from someone, right? I think there is just this notion in Washington of this kind of, you know, pot of money or it just comes from the sky. I hate saying, I hate the term federal government spending or even government spending, it's taxpayer spending. Everything is funded by the, uh, by the, by the taxpayer. And while the left will say, no, no, we're taking from corporations, well, those are those are still money that uh, that could be going to employees or pensions or uh, reinvest, you know, investments in infrastructure and on and on and on. Uh, look, I think we often debate around the margins when it comes to our federal budget. You know, things like uh, Department of Homeland Security, the defense budget, health and human services. That only is called our discretionary budget. That only comprises about 30% of our budget. The vast majority and the fastest growing and the portion that is driving our debt is the non-discretionary, uh, 70% of our budget, which is made up of Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and the interest on our national debt. Uh, and what is undergirding all of that, in my opinion, is the exploding cost of healthcare. Uh, look, everybody who is entitled, uh, who has invested in, uh, particularly when it comes to Social Security, absolutely uh, should receive it. But at some point, those programs are going to go insolvent, and it's going to happen in the next decade. Uh, and what is driving those costs is the cost of healthcare. The difference when you hear uh, folks like myself talk about arresting those costs, we really truly mean reducing the cost selling across state lines, introducing market reforms, introducing choice and competitiveness, uh, really getting after fraud in the Medicaid and Medicare system, tort reform that drives up uh, unnecessary and frivolous lawsuits, those types of things that will actually reduce premiums, reduce deductibles, and reduce costs uh, to our providers. When the left says it's too expensive and we have to, um, when the left says it's too expensive and we have to uh, address the cost. They just mean government takeover, literally. Medicare for all is not government-funded healthcare. It is government-run healthcare. And if we've ever seen the problems with the VA, if you've ever experienced government-run healthcare, that's it. Uh, and uh, that is absolutely the wrong answer, which will only drive uh, our costs up and will only drive our debt up and drive the, eventually these programs to the point where they can't provide the services they need. So to me, that's really, really the crux of the issue. And I look forward to getting the House majority back so that we can take another uh, meaningful bite at that apple. We have to for the future uh, financial stability of the country. Yes. Um, you know, speaking of introducing choice and competitiveness, actually, uh, I have a question for you. Would you be sure. willing to sponsor legislation that would exempt Puerto Rico from the Jones Act? Yeah, that's, you know, that's a, that's a great question. And, a, and <laughs> Jones Act is really complicated, but kind of here's where I am on it. And, uh, but I'm, I'm always open. Uh, you know, international shipping 
can come to Puerto Rico. And I've been, you know, I think the representative, the representative there, Jennifer Gonzalez, who endorsed me, would tell you I've, I've been a huge advocate for Puerto Rico, particularly as it came through uh, these last couple of storms and earthquakes. But I just don't, the, the fact as I've seen them just doesn't um, uh, push me to, to push that kind of legislation because international shipping can come to Puerto Rico. One thing to understand about the Jones Act is it's only from U.S. ports to U.S. ports uh, where, it, where it applies. And here's my concern with, with pushes to eliminate the Jones Act. Uh, we have to have a, um, a U.S.-based, U.S.-run, U.S.-owned maritime system, particularly as it uh, pertains to what the Chinese are trying to do in critical sectors. You know, one of the silver linings from COVID is that we saw that our entire uh, industrial base for protective equipment has been taken over by the Chinese. The active ingredients for some of our key pharmaceuticals like blood thinners, oncology medication, and on has been taken over by the Chinese, even rail cars. The Chinese own 87% of the global market and they are attempting to do the same thing with shipping containers, with ship, uh, shipyards, and with ports. And, you know, I think we could easily see how that is a critical, critical piece of infrastructure that the United States has to own. So look, I'm a free market guy all day long, uh, but, uh, only when it's a level playing field. And when, when you have instances uh, like this one, uh, the Chinese are attempting to do without the Jones Act, they will dump prices below uh, market rates, put our providers out of business, and then gobble up that infrastructure like they have in, in so many others. So that's one of the reasons that, that I've been a supporter of the Jones Act. Um, and when it pertains to Puerto Rico, uh, they can accept uh, international uh, shipping as long as it's not from a U.S. port. I hope that's, uh, hope that, I know that was a long explanation, but I hope that makes sense. But we, we appreciate you taking the time to explain because a lot of people don't understand what the, why the Jones Act was even created. Um, but yeah. jumping into the... Yeah, no, it was created, it was created of, between... Uh, well, I mean, just very quickly, between World War One and World War Two, because the Germans attempted to decimate our uh, maritime fleet, as, as knowing that that would, you know, with America surrounded by uh, two oceans or, you know, bordered by two oceans, that it's critical for international trade. And so that's why it was put in place. I think, you know, the Germans are obviously no longer the issue, but now the Chinese are. And, and again, that's, that's why I've been supportive. But um, I'm sorry I interrupted you. You're a big congressman, but you know, staying on the topic of China, um, as you yeah. know, and you actually you mentioned it as well. You know, we've become so dependent on China f uh, for pharmaceutical needs specifically, and, and that's what I wanted to bring up. Um, what yeah. actions are you working on on bringing pharmaceutical manufacturing back to the U.S. or you, listen, since we're on the topic of Puerto Rico, even back to Puerto Rico, I know uh, the RNHA went to the island uh, during these right. horrible earthquakes and. Uh, I was told by locals there that that place used to be a booming far, uh, pharma town. Like mm -hmm. it, it was full of different type of yep. uh, medical equipment building, stuff like that. And unfortunately, under uh, President Bill Clinton, uh, you know, China, he pretty much set the president and China kind of started getting all that, um, all those benefits back to them and, and away from Puerto Rico. That's so. Right. Um, you know, what, what are you trying to do for us? Uh, uh, yeah, so, so, so big picture, and then I'll speak specifically to pharmaceuticals. 
there has been a notion for many decades now, both sides of the aisle, that number one, China would be a useful hedge as an ally against the Soviets. And they were to some degree, that was the opening that Nixon uh, pushed. Uh, but then all the way from Nixon through, uh, really through to President Trump, the policy was give them our technology, give them subsidies, allow them uh, to come into the World Trade Organization as a developing nation, which gives them all types of benefits. And that, uh, you know, eventually capitalism would change China politically. And that if we keep extending that hand, they will become a responsible international actor. I think in the wake of COVID, we've seen that theory proven false. Instead, China is taking advantage of those benefits and taking advantage of capitalism to try to become a global hegemon. You know, they want, in their words, in President Xi's words, who has just accelerated this, uh, to become the world leader at the expense of the United States in a new global world order where China calls the shots, the Chinese Communist Party calls the shots, they call it socialism with Chinese characteristics, characteristics, and the the United States uh, is number two. So what have they been doing, just as I described, they've been doing, they they seek to do this economically uh, rather than militarily, and by gobbling up these key industries and making not only the United States, but Europe and the rest of the world dependent on China. How do they do that? They do it by, by stealing our technology, either through cyber or through buying it or through our universities. They reverse engineer it. Uh, they set up their own companies. They, they state subsidize, drop the prices below what we can reasonably compete with, put us out of business, you name the sector, and then gobble it up and make us dependent. That's exactly what they've done in pharmaceuticals. Uh, and what, what we're looking to do, I'm working with Senator Rubio on this, is to redefine the Buy America Act. The entire federal government has to buy American first. The problem is Buy America has been defined as where the drugs are finally assembled not where the raw ingredients are coming from. And we're, we've introduced legislation to change that. And I think that alone, between what the Department of Veterans Affairs buys, uh, the Defense Department, Health and Human Services will create a market, but Buy America will be where the ingredients come from, not where the drug was assembled. Why does this matter so much? Is the Chinese Communist Party will use our drugs as leverage to get their way and have threatened already in the middle of COVID, which they started uh, and covered up, uh, they threatened to withhold some key ingredients to, in, in their words, send us into the sea of despair of COVID. Uh, they threatened to do it with Japan. They had a dispute over some, uh, some islands between the two, and they threatened to withhold some raw ingredients uh, critical to their uh, chip manufacturing industry. They're doing it in Australia right now. Bottom line is, We need to bring it back to the United States. I would love to see it in Puerto Rico, uh, but we have to manufacture our drugs here. Uh, That's that's just the bottom line. That isn't just an economic issue. It's a national security issue. And I hope America has woken up to that fact in the wake of this virus. Yes, uh, that was, uh, I certainly, like you, hope that America has woken up to that fact. Uh, This has been an interesting year. Uh, to say the least, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> for sure. Never a dull moment this year. No. That's for sure. Uh, Congressman Waltz, a little uh, background on me. I was 
I was born and raised in Puerto Rico, uh, also ra- raised by a single mom. I became a widow at age 24. And my brother is a retired chief master sergeant. And my grandfather, oh. uh, yes, yeah, my grandfather, a lieutenant colonel from the Army, three-time war vet. Um, so I'm a little passionate about Puerto Rico, obviously. And, um, you know, Puerto Rico has voted in the past to become the 51st state. If brought up and Puerto Ricans again vote to become the 51st state, would you back the will of our citizens that are fighting for equal representation as full Americans? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've co-sponsored the legislation uh, in my time uh, in Congress. I think for the military service that you pointed out alone, um, where Puerto Rico has a disproportionate amount of its citizens serving in the United States military. Look, if you're willing to die for this country as an American, you should have the full rights of every American, uh, including uh, uh, the amount of uh, the right to vote in every election. So I absolutely would support that and uh, look forward to one day uh, seeing that 51st star on the American flag. Thank you for, for that answer, uh, Congressman Walt. Um, you know, since we're getting uh, close to the end here, I, I want to ask you something. Um, and, and actually, it'll be a two-part question. You know, if there's one thing that you that, that you can say, I've at least accomplished this. Um, you know, what what would that one thing be uh, as you're exiting whenever, you know, you decide, okay, you know, the time is now to either go to, uh, whether it's higher office or to go back to being... A, a, a regular civilian in your case that'll be a little bit difficult with your with your amazing resume I mean it's it seems like <laughs> you're, you're you're a military man for life but uh, what yeah. is that one thing that you'd be satisfied with and then the second part of that question is what inspires you or who inspires you yeah so so the first part of that is is you know I talked uh, earlier about how I think having more veterans with a with a that are instilled with a sense of service in our elected leadership at every level, I think would be a game changer for the country uh, in terms of our um, you know functionality in getting things done, uh, both not only in Congress but at all levels. Uh, I want to get the entire country back to serving again. I want to reinstill national service in America. That's not necessarily instilling a mandatory draft, and that's not necessarily in uniform. So uh, when I say national service, that can be inner city tutoring, uh, rural health care, elderly care, national parks, FEMA volunteer corps, Peace Corps, you know, on down the list. But uh, how do we instill that sense of uh, that we did get from the draft before, which was every American at 18 years old uh, every American man, I would now say every American man and woman, learns leadership, followership, teamwork, discipline, you know, those critical life skills. And here's what's most important to me that is often overlooked is, uh, is doing it with other Americans that don't look like you and don't think like you. So whether you're from downtown Detroit, uh, whether you're from a you know, farm boy from West Indiana, Uh, or from LA, you know, in the past, you were all forced together for a higher cause for your country. And, and and that forcing function, you know, taught you how to overcome your biases and your differences and learn how to work together for that, 
for that higher cause. And that really came home to me when uh, uh, a World War II veteran that was a mentor of mine used to tell me that the first black man, the first African-American he ever spoke to his entire life, he came from the segregated South, was his bunkmate in the Navy. And then they became lifelong friends, right? I think we've got to get back to that forcing function. Um, you know, the Israelis do it mandatory. That's a population of 8 million, our population of 350 million. I think we have to find ways to incentivize it. I've introduced legislation that would provide community college tuition uh, after a year of national service uh, and or in-state tuition wherever you've served. So, but, you know, there's a lot of talk about just giving uh, college away or just forgiving student loans, you know, for free this, free that. I want some service for it. And uh, not only does the country get some service uh, for the, those taxpayer initiatives, but, you know, you also get a, a, a youth imbued with those life skills like we had in the greatest generation. And so I think if I could get that done, that will be a game changer for future generations and for the direction of the country. Um, you know, what inspires me, my, you know, my daughter inspires me, my mother inspires me, uh, my family. Um, and, and really what drives me every day, day in, day out, being in politics isn't easy right now in case you haven't noticed. But, you know, I wear, uh, you can't see it, but I wear, you know, one of the military bracelets for our killed in action. Uh, and I wear it for one of my Green Berets that I lost in Afghanistan. His name was Staff Sergeant Matt Pacino. And, you know, every day that I get up, I try to get some exercise in, you know, uh, a shower. I put this bracelet back on and I look in the mirror and just tell myself to be worthy. And I think every American needs to strive to be worthy of those men and women who are no longer with us, who died for the freedoms and the free air that we wake up breathing every day. Uh, whether that's your freedom to protest peacefully, uh, to worship as you want, to strive for the limit as an, you know, for the sky's the limit as an entrepreneur and on and on. So that, that's what really at the end of the day drives me to continue to serve. And our men and women that are out there on the front lines right now as we speak, deserve better than what they're getting from from washington dc so that that motivates me every single day and that's that's why i'm going to continue to do this as long as i'm effective yeah thank you so much i know it's not easy in today's climate and you have certainly uh gone over so much information that uh, you know i i want to be able to help people find getting a, a, a lot more of of what you're working on in washington dc where can uh people go if they wish to donate to your campaign to learn more about you or as well as the committees that you serve in sure so um um on the campaign side it's michaelwaltz.com w-a-l-t-z.com uh and yes you know i can have the most amazing ideas and background as a businessman and a veteran but but we, we need resources to get that word out um, and to get that message out. So that's always uh, appreciated. And again, that's michaelwaltz.com. That's on the campaign side. Uh, my official page is waltz.house.gov. And that's where someone can look at um, you know, the legislation that we've passed and sponsored and supported my work on the Armed Services Committee and also on the Science, uh, Space and Technology Committee. Uh, very proud of that work. Uh, and uh, a lot of it has been focused on STEM education, particularly as it comes to uh, minorities and women, which are underrepresented. 
uh, and, and always welcome feedback. Um, and we do our best to answer every single correspondence that we receive. So, so that's on uh, michaelwaltz.com on the campaign side and waltz.house.gov on the, on the official side. Thanks so much for asking. Okay, Mr. Uh, Congressman Waltz, I, I want to appreciate you for being on our show. Uh, before you, we go, do, do you have any final thoughts, any, anything you want to say to our listeners, um, why they should vote for you, regardless of what party they belong to, the importance of keeping somebody with the military experience as yourself in Congress, anything you'd like to say to our listeners? Well, you know, two things very quickly. One, you know, I'm an optimist on this country. Uh, we have gone through far tougher times. Uh, uh, and, and I think if you really are a student of history and look at where we've been to where we are now, uh, the, the, the progress isn't always as fast as everybody wants. It's incremental. Uh, our founding fathers designed the checks and balances to be difficult, uh, and believe me, they are. But I do think we're moving forward uh, as a nation. And look, our government isn't this kind of thing out there. It's made of people. Uh, and the people that come to office, I think, are driven by their experiences. And, and as I've told you, what drives me are my experiences in combat, uh, in, in the White House, in the Pentagon, but also in business. And, and having to sign the front of a paycheck to create jobs. Uh, and, and I just feel like I've walked that walk. And I bring all of those experiences to the table. And then I, you know, I approach it with, I would rather have 40 or 50% now. Let's find compromise. Let's find common ground with both sides. Uh, and I would rather have 40 to 50% now than 100% uh, never. Uh, and I think that's how our system is designed. You know, I, I founded a bipartisan caucus uh, called Four Country with Republicans and Democrats, both sides of the aisle, with that same approach, all of whom have fought and served uh, for this country overseas. Again, Congressman Waltz, thank you for being on our show. Folks, uh, that's this week's episode of Hispanics Lead Right. Uh, as you know, it's a broadcast of the Republican National Hispanic Assembly of Florida. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.